welcome to the podcast, The Common Bridge with Richard Helpy. Rich is a successful entrepreneur in the technology, health, and finance space. He and his wife, Leslie, are also philanthropists with interest in civic and artistic endeavors, but with a primary focus on medically and educationally underserved children. My name is Brian Kruger, and from time to time, I'll be the moderator and host of this podcast. Hello and welcome to The Common Bridge. Rich has a very special guest for us today. His name is Mort Krim. And if you don't know Mort's story, um, he was a broadcast journalist and author who spent more than 40 years in both local and national radio and television news. He's covered presidential summits, space flights, uh, Mideast War, and for five years he was radio personality, legendary radio personality, Paul Harvey's regular vacation backup. Mort was a correspondent with ABC based in New York and for the Post Newsweek television stations. And he's been an anchor at KWY-TV in Philadelphia, WBBM-TV in Chicago, and for 20 years he was a senior anchor, and this is how I knew him, at WDIV in Detroit, where he also was a national correspondent for the parent company, Post Newsweek Television. Mort's nationally syndicated radio series, Second Thoughts, was on the air for 15 years at its peak, and it was carried by more than 1,300 radio stations plus It was always broadcast to the Armed Forces Radio Network. Mort holds a master's degree in journalism from Northwestern University. He has four honorary doctorates and scores of news awards, including six Emmys. He was among the first honorees inducted into uh, Northwestern University's Hall of Achievement and is the recipient of a Lifetime Achievement Award from the University of Nebraska-Omaha, where he earned his bachelor's degree. He's been inducted into the Michigan Broadcast Hall of Fame, the Illinois Broadcasters Hall of Fame, and the Philadelphia Broadcast Pioneers Hall of Fame. He's an active churchman, serving currently as an elder at the Palms Presbyterian Church in Jacksonville Beach, Florida. He's the author of seven books and has just completed his eighth, a memoir tracing both his professional and spiritual journey from small-town Southern Illinois preacher's son to major market anchorman. Now, among his most illustrious credits is one of my (laughs) favorites, are the two Anchorman movie satires for which Will Ferrell credits Mort and co-anchor Jessica Savage with providing the inspiration for those two characters in those films. Singer Jack White built a song around one of Mort's radio commentaries and included Mort's voice on his album, Elephant, which sold over a million copies and went platinum. That album is one of Mort's biggest claims to fame among the millennials. For two seasons in 2017 and 2018, he had an ongoing cameo role playing himself in the Comedy Central sitcom The Detroiters, and in one episode he was given the starring role. Mort's also an Air Force veteran and a civilian pilot who's logged nearly 7,000 hours in everything from Piper Cubs to executive class twin Cessnas. He holds an airline transport rating and in 2011 received a Wright Brothers Master Pilot Award from the FAA. He also was a serious boat captain and in 2014 served as Commodore of the Queens Harbor Yacht Club in Jacksonville, Florida, where he and his wife, Renee, now reside. And we welcome Mort to the Common Bridge. Mort and Rich are in different states right now, so there's a few audio issues, but not many. So we're just going to throw you right into this, and we'll join their conversation in progress. All right. Well, very good. Well, uh, first of all, uh, Mort, and I'm sure you hear this from anybody that's that's uh, lived in uh, Metro Detroit, um, just uh, always enjoyed your your newscast and your, your tone and your demeanor. Um, I'd been involved in healthcare for a long time, and one of the things that we learned was that the second most trusted person after uh, somebody's personal doctor was their local uh, newscaster. 
their, their local anchor um, in terms of uh, the, the trust levels. And I, and I think that, uh, you know, you really uh, did the profession well. Um, I'm out here in uh, Chelsea, Michigan, by the way, and uh, um, I was speaking with a mutual friend of ours this morning, uh, Guy Sandville, and I've been a longtime supporter of the Purple Rose Theater and uh, has, I've had the pleasure of seeing uh, several of Carrie's plays produced. And in fact, absent this uh, quarantine, we'd be at the theater on Friday to see Paint Night. So God willing, she'll get- We would be, we would be there too, Rich. Our, our intent was to be there for, uh, if not the opening, at least one of the shows very shortly after that. Well, listen, when you do come up, when this gets resumed, um, uh, I'm taking you both to the uh, Common Grill for dinner before the show. My wife and I will take you. One of our favorite places. Thank you. Indeed. Um, you know, Mort, there's some really good people out there trying to do some good work. Uh, Devin Skillian in Detroit, uh, Gino Lamont in Palm Springs. Uh, Gino, uh, just by way of example, he does a summary on KMIR every day since the crisis has begun. Uh, he's calm. He's fact-based. Um, he really does work hard try to get the story right. And when you think about a couple guys like this, is that still the rule or more the exception these days? Well, I think you have to look at the entire media spectrum and make some delineations, particularly between local television news and 24-hour cable news. I think one of the reasons that this misperception about how journalists have become so biased in recent years is a direct result of 24-hour cable, where number one, they have 24 hours a day to fill, and number two, it's become impossible to distinguish between opinion and news on these cable channels. And that's because they've really crossed, not only crossed the line between news and entertainment, but they've erased that line. And news material, the stories themselves, have become merely fodder for entertainment shows, which is what these programs are. So people look at that and they see people like Andrea Mitchell and Brian Williams and people that they've always identified as news people, and they see them taking opinion positions on issues, including the White House, and they say, well, all the news people are biased. Well, that's not really true. And if you look at, uh, at some of the great newspapers, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the LA Times, the, the uh, St. Louis Post-Dispatch, the Louisville Courier-Journal, there are so many great papers out there and local news operations in television that are still playing it straight, trying to get to the facts, telling people the truth. But I really think the perception has been totally tainted by the 24-hour, uh, seven-day-a-week news channels with Fox on the right, MSNBC on the left, CNN trying to, to straddle a middle course and, and still tell it straight, although a lot of people don't think so. See, a lot of people think if, if you report something that goes against my bias or prejudice, then you're biased and prejudiced. We learned in journalism school, I remember a, uh, a textbook we had on mass communication and one very interesting chapter 
about how communication takes a transmitter and a receiver. And the static and the, uh, the distortions can come at either end. And I think there's a lot of static and distortion at the receiving end these days, too, as well as at some of the transmitting end. Because we can hear and listen and see through biases and prejudices that distort the message every bit as much or maybe more than at the transmitting end. So that's my that's my comment today on the state of, of journalism. Well, I look, I think uh, that's very true, and that uh, people seem to be on a hair trigger for uh, something that doesn't fit their ideology. And it's almost like, if you're not one of us, you must be one of them. And uh, uh, one of the reasons that I established the common bridge is that we have a lot more in common. Um, We can talk about what the policy should be. And I'm of the mind that this partisan divide fueled by this 24-hour news cycle is is driving us apart and making it very difficult, if not impossible, to get to solutions. And it it made me think a little bit about, you know, the standards that, that you learn in journalism school and that you practiced in your profession about sourcing a story and how are things different today? Um, from an external point of view, not an expert on this, it seems that speed is more important than accuracy or thoroughness or nuance. Am I wrong about that? One of the uh, one of the greatest threats to accuracy and truth in journalism has been live coverage. And let me explain that. Okay. When I was doing television news in Detroit. I was responsible and my team was responsible for basically two newscasts a day, the early news, dinnertime news, and the late news at 11 o'clock. And that meant that all day long, we had a system in place and we had a team in place where there were checks and backstops and double checks. So a reporter would bring a story in And it got viewed by uh, a producer, perhaps. It got viewed maybe by an assignment editor. It got certainly viewed by the reporter uh, and reviewed multiple times. And sometimes the assistant news director or the news director, depending on the weight of the story, would take a look. So there were checks and balances. And if something didn't seem right or if a fact looked like it needed to be double-checked, it would be. There was a process. Now, for the most part, and particularly at the national level, you have all these reporters out on the street, out on the story, reporting live. There is no editorial process. There is nobody looking over the shoulder to give a second opinion. There is nobody saying, you better double check that because they're winging it. They have to wing it. And so there's a tremendous amount of responsibility on the reporter on the scene that got spread around. It was a team effort before. And I think that, as you say, that desire to be first, that desire to be live, that desire to be on the scene has short-circuited the editorial process that was in place 
and actually still is in place in many ways in the local newsroom and in newspaper uh, operations to a degree that it is not with this live 24-hour news cycle. You know, what I'm kind of inferring in this, and, and maybe you could clarify, is that when we weren't in this hasty 24-hour news cycle, the emphasis on depth and the emphasis on on accuracy um, was prevalent. And in the 24-hour cycle, it's all about speed. And I'm just wondering, you know, and I'm going to imagine that you had to uh, review and perhaps discipline reporters. And I would imagine those that weren't accurate or didn't get the depth, didn't get to keep their job. And I'm wondering today if it's more a person's job in the reporting world might be more at risk for not being fast enough and less so with being inaccurate. Yeah. And every editor needs an editor. Uh, I consider myself a a decent writer, but when I would write a lead story or any story uh, for the newscast, uh, I wanted somebody to look at it. I wanted the, uh, the producer of the show to take a look uh, at my words, or maybe a fellow reporter, maybe have Carmen look at it. I wanted somebody else to give me an opinion. And, and if it looked like I was off base or didn't have my facts exactly straight, I wanted that backstop. And, uh, you know, most of us who, uh, who grew up in journalism, who went to journalism school, who trained for the profession, we wanted to be accurate. We wanted to be truthful. We wanted to tell it like it was. And I think there is that, that same desire and that same drive, certainly among uh, great journalists like Devin, uh, there is that same desire to do it right. But time constraints, live reporting, competition, all of these things have conspired in a way that makes it more difficult today, I think, to do it than, uh, than it did. And of course, you've got the, the competition now from the internet and so many people going to unreliable sources uh, to to get their their so-called news and a lot of times it's it's not accurate it's not true yeah and I and I look at, from a lay perspective it seems that some of that disease has creeped over uh, into the areas and to the companies that should be the leaders in accuracy um, you know I was looking into a Washington Post story uh, earlier. And it was yet one more of according to sources and unverified. And my level of distrust for them not being able to pinpoint basic facts like a source, a timeline, and a quote uh, caused me concern. And then also, you know, in recent months, you know, it seems that there's a penalty if your news outlet is not appealing to its its base. So the uh, you know editor of the New York Times being recorded saying they're they're not going to say anything good about this administration. Um, they have been guilty of changing their headlines multiple times because their readers thought it wasn't harsh enough. Uh, the owner of CNN's declared that they're not impartial. Um, 
And I know that that's got to have an impact on those true practitioners of journalism inside of those organizations. Sure. And, and I'm sure, look, and, sure. and, and there, I'm sure it happens uh, in Fox and uh, MSNBC and uh, elsewhere. It's just that you kind of know the brand you're going to get when you go to Fox. You're going to know the brand you're going to get when you go to MSNBC. Yeah. That's that's yeah. that's what I'm troubled about is, you know, the competitive pressures that you've mentioned starting to drag people away from mission. Let me uh, let let me venture a little bit into the whole ideological area, because I think mostly what we're dealing with today is more cultural than it is ideological. Uh, Trump has been a, a cultural phenomenon. And uh, everybody knows, it's well known, that he spent most of his life as a Democrat, that he is not uh, ideologically from the conservative side, although that's, that's where, his, where he's drawn most of his base. But I want to talk about that ideological divide in our country. We have always made our most progress when the two sides could compromise and find common ground somewhere in the middle. And Bill Clinton, at the dedication of his library, made a really important statement. He said, we need, we need conservatives. Um, no, we need liberals. to We need conservatives to hold to the lines that should be there, but we need liberals to erase the lines that never should have been drawn. And I thought that was a, a pretty good uh, analysis. Now, I look at the liberal side of the spectrum as the village people, and it does take a village to get anything accomplished. I look at the Republican or the conservative side as the individual, and it does take individuals to get anything accomplished. I covered the space program. I was down at the Cape for every launch from Gemini 3 through Apollo 12. And I saw a great illustration of, of what I'm saying here. Uh, it took a village to build the rockets and create the systems and organize the teams that it took to put a person on the moon. But in the final analysis, it took the bravery and the skill and the dedication and the knowledge of a single individual or three individuals to get in that rocket, in that uh, Apollo ship and go to the moon. That's the way our society works. It takes government, it takes business, it takes all the people working in concert. That's, that's the, the so-called progressive or liberal part of our democracy in action. It takes that. But in the final analysis, it, it also takes individual leaders with their entrepreneurial skills, their strengths, their, their courage uh, to make the whole thing work. And I think when, when people say, ah, we don't need the liberals, we don't need the progressives, or they say, we don't want the conservatives, we don't want the, the, the individualists, they're missing the fact that it takes both to make our democracy work. And it's when these two ideologies are working in tandem, and the tension between them is producing good things in the middle. And we're missing that because everybody's retreated to their corner and they're demonizing the other side instead of recognizing that both sides need each other. Mort, uh, that is a wonderful description of the condition that we're in. And, and I share your view and 
which is why I'm putting myself and my name out there on a limb to say uh, there's more that bridges us. And, you know, I, I'd like to just mention President Clinton a little bit, because I think three things really stood out uh, that spoke to his character and something that we've lost. Um, he said when he first got to office, and he remember, he ran on the third way. And he said, you know, my, my party drug me so far to the left, I didn't recognize myself. And I vowed not to do that. And I thought that was great, uh, a great amount of insight. And I remember him reaching out to Speaker Gingrich. And they said, look, we come at this from different perspectives. Um, we, we aren't going to agree, but let's find a way to work together. And they forged a relationship around commonality of, of trying to work on welfare reform, as an yeah. example. Yes. Um, and then the other thing, and in sharp contrast to our president today, um, President Clinton was interviewed, it was either Forbes or Fortune, and he said, you know, I was lucky to be president during the boom of Internet One and the run-up to Y2K because the economy was running on full cylinders. He didn't try to take credit for the performance of the stock market. He said, yeah, I was there, and that was a fortunate thing that happened during my time in office. And that, I think, is one of the, the troubling things about this administration, um, that we have a president that, uh, I better not very, <laughs> let's try to stay on the media today. I, I could, that could be a longer, when, when we have dinner at the Common Grill, we'll talk about that. And, and I, I'll be yeah. publishing some ed editorials. But let me come back on the media a little bit. Um, this is a friend of mine. He's a former college professor and a really learned guy. Um, and in recent years, he told me that his view of the news coverage has been one of promoting a threat. And his reason says, look, a threat is something you can't divert your attention from. And if your business model says we need eyeballs, clicks, and subscriptions, then we've got to get fear-mongering and hysteria because if the media can stoke or exaggerate threats, they're going to get more of that traffic. Is, is that on base or off base? I think it's true. I think it's true. And, uh, you know, I... <laughs> I sometimes feel about our free press the way Churchill felt about democracy. He said it's the worst form of government there is, except for all the rest. <laughs> I love that quote. I've been to Cuba. Uh, I've, I've seen what happens. I, I was in Russia before the Iron Curtain fell. Uh, I, I know the, uh, the terribleness of having a government controlled or government sanctioned uh, or a press that's interfered with by the government. I know what that is. And as messy and as difficult as it is to put up with, with our free press and all the yelling and screaming, and but it's still the best system there is um, when, you can, when you compare it to all the others. So I, I am totally in favor of free press and the First Amendment. I, I don't want to put the muzzle on anybody 
I think uh, truth, when it's let loose in the, on the battlefield of ideas, will ultimately win. Maybe I'm a Pollyanna, but uh, history tells me that ultimately the demagogues fail. Truth comes out. And even with all the noise of the Internet these days and the fact that there are so many uh, false voices out there telling untruths and half-truths and distortions, I just think that ultimately uh, on the field of ideas, truth, if we just hang in there and we keep telling it and we keep presenting the facts and we don't compromise, uh, if there are enough voices willing to do that in print, on the Internet, in television, in all the various social media, ultimately truth is going to win. I, I have to believe that. I, I share your optimism. And yet I also know that if you bring out facts and it doesn't fit someone's ideology, you could often get an emotional reaction. Um, the cancel culture goes into full, uh, full bloom. Um, I, I believe it's got uh, uh, implications. Um, but more, you, you know, you covered a lot of presidents. You covered the Nixon presidency and Watergate. Um, you know, has the news reporting become more fair, less fair, um, you know, as it pertains to covering the presidency? Well, the only president that I covered personally, because I was doing national news uh, for ABC at the time Lyndon Johnson was president, the other presidents, I was uh, in local TV news by that time. And yes, I covered them, but not close up. I covered them the way the way you do when you're uh, covering for a station. But uh, certainly the, the way we cover presidents has changed. And I think the way we covered this president has dramatically changed because He's a different kind of president than the country has ever had before. And his relationship with the media is different than it has ever been. Yes, John Kennedy canceled his subscription to the Washington Post and Harry Truman got mad at the columnist who criticized his daughter's singing. And we can go back and back and say there's always been tension between the White House and the media. There should be, because our job is to, is to keep these people accountable in all branches of government. But that's different than having a, a, a chief executive who calls the press the enemy of the people and who refers to any coverage that he doesn't like as fake news. So I, I think there's we, we've moved qualitatively into a whole different kind of relationship now. And if it seems that the press is taking this president on as an adversary, that's a two-way street. And uh, I, I think it becomes more and more difficult for us as journalists to retain our objectivity and our fairness in the face of somebody who has said, you're not just a critic of this administration, you are the enemy of the people. That puts us into a whole different dynamic and dimension. And it's worrisome. I, I concur. And you know, I saw uh, the hostility uh, between the president and the press, and I think that's a topic. And, you know, I also remember President Obama's first news conference, and the reporter from the New York Times asked him a four-part question about, you know, you've been in office so many days, and 
what have you found most surprising, most pleasant, and what most enchanting? And uh, President Obama, he almost couldn't stifle a smile like, wait a minute, let me write that down. You want to know what I found enchanting? I mean, it, it, it was <laughs> the, the most softball of softball questions. And I remember sitting mm-hmm. there as a citizen saying, all right, we've got a new president. Let's hope that he does a phenomenal job. Uh, and yet I do want the press not to be fawning, but I want the press to be vigilant. Yes. So, so you know, Mort, yes. here's a here's a something. Suppose that President Trump would agree to sit down for an interview with you without preconditions. What questions would you like to ask him? Boy, that is a uh, you have just given me a very tough. Assignment. <laughs> well, we can come back and record again next week if you want a little chance to talk, think about it too. I, I boy. You know, it's, I'm going to show, I guess, some bias here, but I have a problem with this president because I'm still trying to figure out his moral core. Uh, I've disagreed with policies of every president we've ever had. I've disagreed with some of Obama's policies, some of Bush's policies, some of Clinton's, Reagan's, they go down the line. And on a policy basis, I disagreed with all of them, Democrat or Republican. But I could think those things through and discuss and figure out a way to talk to each of them if I had that opportunity. Some of them I did have. But in this case, I I feel like I'm dealing with somebody who is so inwardly focused that I find it difficult to find the man's core to, to, to figure out rational questions because I don't really know who he is or where he is, except that all of the manifestations that I have seen indicate to me that he is totally self-focused, mm-hmm. wants to take credit for everything, blame for nothing. And I look for qualities of leadership and I say, you know, he's a great performer. He's a great television performer. He, he played a, a businessman on television and convinced a lot of people that that's what we needed to run the country. But when I try to get past that TV persona and that ability he has at rallies to stir people up and say, who is this man? What is at his core? What does he truly believe? Where can we tap in? I would not know what to ask. I suppose if I had the opportunity to interview him, I certainly would sit down and work out a list of questions. But that's my initial problem, is that with with Bush, with Reagan, with Nixon, with Clinton, with Obama, I kind of knew where their center was. I kind of knew where their core was. And that would have made it a lot easier to do an interview with them. Does that make any sense? It, it makes a lot of sense. Um, in the run-up to the 2016 election, um, I was at a meeting where Bill O'Reilly was the speaker. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was a situation, no cameras, no recording. And he talked about interviewing uh, Donald Trump. And he said, you know, you're, you're going to defeat ISIS. How are you going to do that? Trump's answer was, I'm not going to tell you. He said, well, what about the 
trade agreements that you're talking about redoing, how are you going to approach that? Trump said, not going to tell you. Um, and Arias said, well, you mentioned you're going to do something about the border. How are you going to pull that off? Trump said, I'm not going to tell you. So I wish I had a visual on this because, you know, Bill O'Reilly is a very big guy too, by the way. He's huge. Mm-hmm. It's like I'm tall, right? And yep. O'Reilly just kind of slowly shakes his head. He said, this was the strangest interview I've ever done. Mm-hmm. And I, he, I got no answers to anything. And, and they were not gotcha questions. They weren't pointed questions. They were, what's your, what's your game plan? Yeah. And what you would expect any president or presidential candidate to be able to answer and, and willing to answer. Precisely. And that I think, again, we try to want to keep focus on the role of the media, um, which I, I do think the partisanship and the, the fuel that uh, many of the media outlets have uh, given to this partisan divide uh, to try to profit mm-hmm. from it, I, I, I believe is a problem. It's what we're trying to deal with on the Common Bridge. Um, and as I tell my listeners and um, recently wrote a couple of editorials, I say prepared to come to the Common Bridge to find things that you don't like. Prepare to dislike some aspect, but they're designed that way. If you want to go to a place that you're going to agree with a, a particular ideology, you know you, you know where to go if you're from the left, you know where to go if you're from the right. Um, mm-hmm. We have real problems and there's common sense solutions, I think, if we can back down um, from ideology. Um, more, I wonder if we could shift gears just a little bit. Um, I want to touch a little bit on the coronavirus. Um, and I want to talk about this from your view as a journalist. Um, clearly, it's a threat to our health in every form. Um, we've seen our public slow to respond. And it was one of the things that I wrote about in 2016 is that we've had an onslaught of uh, reporting, and I really don't know how to categorize it, but, oh, there's going to be a calamity. And, you you know, then eventually I said, when we have a real crisis, people aren't going to listen and they're not going to take it seriously. And I know I'll leave some things out, but, you know, we spent a couple of years saying, okay, the, the, the Russian collusion story is going to collapse around the president. And I saw headlines on major, you know, news outlets, uh, uh, the, the walls are closing on the, uh, the president. And then we discovered what that was. Um, we had lots of stories and scandals and things. Oh, this, now this person is going to bring down the president. And we culminated in an impeachment that we still haven't seen this person that actually lit this, the whistleblower, if such a person exists. And my concern is, do people tune out or become numb when we're faced with this, and, and dare I say, existential health crisis that we need to be paying attention to because they've been told to be alarmed so many times? Or, or is the coronavirus different enough where maybe it's the thing that unites us? 
Well, 9-11 united us. It didn't last, but it uh, certainly brought the country together in recognizing there was a common threat. And I think uh, this this is doing that. I, it, it remains to be seen uh, how long we will continue to think of ourselves as one country who have uh, common interest in defeating this. I, uh, I can't predict that. And I agree with your analysis. We've seen all of these things that we were quite sure was going to, uh, was going to change uh, the public perception of leadership. And uh, you still have that core of people who will be unmoved. Uh, you have people on both sides of the Trump issue who, who seemingly are unmoved. And, and the more things seem to, uh, to rein in on him, the more his core base, you know, he, he, he made that famous statement. I could go out in the middle of fifth Avenue and shoot somebody <laughs> and my, my supporters would still be with me. Well, now we're going to see several thousand dead. Uh, who knows how many the predictions range from a hundred thousand to 200,000. I don't know what, what it's ultimately going to be, but, um, uh, you know, how, how much of that responsibility will come back to him in terms of delayed action? Uh, I know already they're starting to make the spin. I heard Vice President Pence say uh, just he slipped in in that news conference yesterday about how the president had been on this for several months. Well, the facts would say otherwise, but uh, that's going to be the spin. And uh, I don't know. I... I would like to think that through this crisis, we will, all of us, all of us on both sides of the spectrum, start to recognize that truth that you have stated a couple of times in this program, and that is that there is more that unites us than divides us. But somehow we're going to have to work our way uh, across the barrier. We're going to have to come to a middle ground in recognizing that we need both ideologies, we need the village approach, we need the individual approach, we need the conservatives to draw the lines that should never be crossed and the liberals to erase the lines that never should have been drawn. That's how our society and our democracy functions best. And frankly, we've not been functioning very well for the last several years as the divide has gotten deeper and as the media has exacerbated uh, rather than ameliorated this uh, this terrible division in our society. Uh, Mort, that is uh, well said, and something that you said early on uh, during our chat today, um, it comes down to the truth. And, you know, today in the fog of war around this virus and decisions being made on the fly, um, you know, there's going to be good moves made and bad moves made. Um, but afterwards, a great journalist would take and let's distill what happened with a timeline, with facts, uh, what occurred, and what we can do better when faced with a threat again. Um, that's, I think, the best we can hope for. Uh, you've been very, very generous with your time. Uh, it is really great to hear the familiar voice of Mort Krim. Uh, I know that many of my listeners were very excited to know that you were going to uh, be on the Common Bridge podcast. Uh, the offer to host in Chelsea, uh, when you come here, when we uh, get to see the great shows at the Purple Rose Theater, uh, truly a treasure 
uh, of Michigan and the region. Uh, thanks so much again, Mort, for being on the Common Bridge. Rich, it has been my pleasure. We certainly look forward to taking you up on that invitation. Give my very best regards to my good friend Guy Sandville and all the folks at Purple Rose. And uh, you keep up the good work because building bridges is what it's all about. I'm involved with a, with a group at our church that has that exactly as its mission. And we started out trying to build bridges with the, with the Muslim and the Jewish communities and, uh, and other religious communities in our area. But now, of course, it has moved into trying to bridge this ideological split in our country. So I'm happy to participate. Uh, you know, there's so little that particularly a retired journalist, but one who is under self-imposed quarantine right now, as, as <laughs> many of us are, there's very little we can do. So if this has made even the smallest contribution to, uh, to understanding, it's been my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. You have been listening to Richard Helpy's Common Bridge podcast, recording and post-production provided by Stunt3 Multimedia. All rights are reserved by Richard Helpy. For more information, visit richardhelpy.com.